Hello and welcome to Bite Back Chats Books. This week we're heading back in time to the golden age of Fleet Street, when the smell of ink filled the air and stories about the royals made the front page as often as they do now. Here to talk more about both is seasoned journalist Clive Irving, whose book The Last Queen examines the royal family's relationship with the press. Welcome Clive. Welcome to the Bite Back Virtual Podcast. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for coming on. We're here to talk about your book, The Last Queen, which is out very shortly. And yeah, it's a look at uh, the life of the royal family, um, as I understand it, uh, from through the lens of the media and how they've interacted with the media over the years. And it's been quite a tempestuous relationship, so I'm sure lots of people are aware. Um, but let's just get started by talking about why you decided to write it. It struck me, there are two things really. One is that my career as a journalist, coincidentally, has sort of paralleled that of the Queen. I really started in journalism at about the same time as her coronation. And so I, as a, as a, in my kind of serious journalism, I sort of attract the royal family for a long while. But what struck me as very, very odd is if you consider the huge number of royal books that there are, there's so few on the Queen herself. It's like number one is missing. You know, n- number one in the cast is missing. There's several good reasons for that. I think that she's the only member of the royal family who never gets the tra- tabloid treatment. She never gets into the tabloids because she doesn't generate anything really, basically, that would do that. And then I thought, as a supplement to that idea, I thought that it would be interesting for someone like me, who's not in the normal track of royal biographers, to come in and take a look at her. Obviously, I'm fascinated by her as a person. And secondly, to take a look at how her 70 years on the throne have been affected by the way that the royal family has been treated in the media. And it's an extraordinary transforming story because at the beginning of my story, chronologically at the beginning of her reign, the the monarchy and particularly the queen are treated with enormous deference. And the the media coverage, if you looked at it now, it would be astonishing how fawning it was and how much public deference and how much reluctance there was to look at it critically and and scrutinize the monarchy. And I think it's always important. I tried all the way through writing this book to make a distinction between the monarchy and the queen, because that's not necessarily the same thing. I mean, she's the figurehead of the monarchy, but it's much easier to criticize the institution than it is to criticize the queen. So one of the tasks I set myself in the course of telling this story chronologically was to look at the crises in her life and the way that they were covered in the media and the the way she responded to those crises. And then about halfway through the book, I realized that I'd been something of an agent of change myself in journalism in two ways. I introduced investigative reporting at the Sunday Times, and then I joined David Frost in his television journalism, um, where we changed the whole idea of how tough television journalism was going to be. And so I was very conscious myself of of all the social and cultural changes taking place during my lifetime in the country. And therefore it made me more more acutely interested in how the Queen responded to those same cultural changes. So that's some of the agenda that I tried to fulfill in, in writing the book. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like there's a lot of really interesting stuff to get stuck into uh, over the course of this chat, but let's start things off by addressing the title which is quite quite striking it's a bit of a statement the last queen you say that you know you're trying to differentiate between the person and the monarchy but that that kind of sums both up in one so can you talk to me a bit about why you 
decided to call your book the last queen do you think that elizabeth might be the last queen in that case and, and why yeah the title came to me suddenly when i was thinking well there haven't been that many queens and the ones we remember really are elizabeth I, victoria and this one uh, so she's really third in the line of remarkable queens i mean uh, there was um anne too but these these are the three formidable <laughs> that you remember mm. And the reason why I think she's the last is not simply because the crown is going, when the crown passes, it passed to a line of, of men. That, that's pretty much set in line. There aren't any, she was an accidental queen. That's the title of my first chapter is the accidental queen. She became queen only because of the abdication and because then her father was the next in line and he had two daughters. And so that was what produced this situation. Also, I think there's another meaning in my title I intended it to have, which is, a reflective one about, okay, so she will be the last queen. What does that mean in terms of how the monarchy is viewed and, and behaves under a woman rather than a man? So I've tried to deal with that too. Yeah, I mean, how do you think that the role of the monarch would change once Charles becomes king? Because he's a lot more outspoken, or he has in the past been a lot more outspoken than his mother, who's very much like never complain, never explain. Do you think that might damage the monarchy? Yeah, Charles doesn't have any of his mother's gifts in discretion and concealing his views. I mean, the astonishing thing about the Queen is after all this time, we still don't really know what her own personal views are on anything, whereas we know all of Charles's personal views on anything, ranging from flower arrangements to um, to, to military service and stuff like that, so, and parenting. So I took the view at the end of the book that he was unfit to be the, the next king, and I took that view because of his record of meddling or trying to meddle in things in which he poses as an expert like architecture, but really understands little or nothing. And he's not, a because he's had such a turbulent personal life, he comes to the throne carrying so much baggage in a way that his mother never did. So that's, a, that's an instant burden on his becoming king. If William, it's not constitutionally possible to hop over unless Charles decides to not do it, but Otherwise, it's not constitutionally possible to do what a lot of people would like to happen, to go straight to William. Because when you look at the Queen today, going around with William, they look such a happily matched couple. Yeah, it is interesting because I think before the Queen, I think the monarchy obviously was was very was very male dominated. But she, maybe alone of all the monarchs I can think of, has shaped the role for the modern age. Like, how do you how do you think the Queen has changed? our perceptions of what a monarch is over her reign. Well, yeah, um, if you've been in the same, if anyone has been in the same line of business for 70 years, and not many people are in the same line of business for 70 years, so Queen and me basically have been the same line of business for 70 years, <laughs> you, you evolve. Um, and I think there are kind of three phases in the Queen's life. There's the first, what you could call the apprentice phase, where she's really very young, very inexperienced and learning on the job and has a tremendous mentor. In, in, the, in the form of Churchill. Couldn't have got, had a better mentor than that. Then there's a kind of middle period where she's more mature, more secure, but uh, there are recurrent family ruptures, family problems. A lot of those problems are to do with the relationship with Mount, Earl Mountbatten and Earl Mountbatten's influence on Philip and then Philip's influence on Charles. So there's a kind of masculine line of, of conflict going on in there. Um, and it's not really until 1979 when Mountbatten dies that, that 
period of the Queen. I felt I was really telling the story of two royal families during that period, the Mountbatten side of the family and the Windsor side of the family. And there was a tension that she had to manage between these two things all the time. Once Mountbatten's out of the way, she then becomes, I think you can see this change. She becomes more self-assured and she has a more resolved view of what her life should be in terms of being an expression of the monarch and the monarchy. It's very conservative, really, very cautious, but she's much more confident. And I think that carried... There was one period in, in this last third phase which completely rattled her and unsettled her, which is the Diana stuff. But otherwise, she's been very, very steady during that period. So basically, there are kind of, I see there are three different queens in this period. Yeah, I didn't realise Mountbatten was such a meddler. <laughs> After having read the book, my uh, eyebrows did shoot skyward a little bit. He was the, he was the worst uncle you'd want in a, in a family, really. A, a self-appointed meddler uh, with an enormous ego, not very smart, um, and with very, very strange views about parenting. They, they've expressed themselves in the mess that's Charles. I mean, the idea of sending Charles to Gordonstown when he was completely psychologically unfitted for that was largely Mountbatten's idea. Yeah, as we all know, that didn't turn out so well. Um, I'm actually, I'm quite interested in the relationship between the Queen and Churchill as well. You said that was part of her apprentice phase Mm -hmm. and that Churchill was, you know, a very good mentor. How did he mentor her? Do you feel like his views have shaped the person she's become? Yeah, I think they have. I I think it's, uh, I think there's another thing to be said here, which I found fascinating, is that I think the Queen's, the most important influence in the Queen's life was her father. And she was very close to her father and her father and she and Margaret and their mother, the formidable Queen Mother. Their characters were, well, the Queen's character, I think, was decisively formed during the Second World War. And Churchill was the living embodiment of the survival through the Second World War. And she obviously got to know him much better when she she became Queen than she did during the war. And she saw a reflection of her own father in Churchill. Her father, Churchill was a great admirer of her father. The two of them were great combinations. So there was almost paternalistic quality to this relationship with with Churchill and Churchill was such a great storyteller that there are very few accounts of what went on in the meetings between the two of them but one that stood out to me and I've mentioned in the book is that people standing outside the door the closed door when the two of them were in there often heard them laughing together I, I haven't heard any other accounts of the Queen laughing with any other Prime Minister there was a kind of fondness between them that didn't exist between uh, her and other prime ministers later. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, I mean, turning quickly then from, from the Queen to yourself, you say that yours and her lives have kind of run on parallel tracks. Uh, and you became a journalist at the start of her reign, more or less. So can you talk to me a little bit about that, how you became a journalist, where you started and what it was like to work in the area known as Fleet Street back in the 50s? It must have been an absolute riot. Well, it was because it was this, the 1950s were a sort of high point, really, of what we call hot metal of the old journalism. And it really was hot metal and the smell of ink and so on. It was all very tactile. The whole production of a newspaper was so tactile. It's all completely detached from that now, obviously, because it's digital and remote and cold. But it's unusual in the world to get such a concentration of newspapers in, in one quarter square mile of London as Fleet Street was in those days and I came down from a tabloid in Liverpool to work on a tabloid in London the Daily Sketch no longer exists and it was very exciting to arrive in 1955 
in Fleet Street with all this stuff going on, which happened to be coincidental with the Princess Margaret stuff just beginning to break. And that was a big raw story at the time. I felt that when I arrived in Fleet Street, I was lucky it, to arrive at the end of a kind of golden age. And I felt that it needed a new golden age, that somehow everything was very old fashioned, out of touch, and most of all reflected the the class differences in the in the country. You could you could align each newspaper with a particular segment of the class system. You start at the bottom with the Daily Mirror and end at the top with the Times. And people delineated themselves. And so the middle class thought the Daily Telegraph was not as posh as the Times, but I looked like safely middle class. And the Daily Mail was a bit lower middle class. So you could take the Daily Mail and assign your... I mean, it, it may seem weird now, like another planet, but that's how it was done in those days. How did uh, Where did the Daily Sketch fit in in that case? The Daily Sketch was a kind of genteel version of the, of the Daily Mirror. It was slightly more middle class and less vulgar than the Daily Mirror. <laughs> and then you um, went to work uh, for... It... The Lord Beaver book, who was the most terrifying proprietor in Fleet Street at that moment. I did a reputation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he defines a megalomaniac, really, in terms of the kind of people you don't want to end up working for, although he was a genius in his own way. But... He stopped liking the world around 1935 and everything after 1935 didn't he didn't he was an enormous believer in and promoter of the British Empire because he came from Canada and uh, in in that regard you'd think he would be in alignment with the Queen but he never really was very much he thought that he was the most important single supporter of the British Empire not the Queen. I mean he and Churchill got along famously um did you did you ever meet Churchill? No, I didn't. I got to know Churchill's son, Randolph, extremely well, but I never, never didn't know his father. But I got to know Churchill kind of inadvertently, if you like, or indirectly through, through um, Beaverbrook, because Beaverbrook would, would talk about Churchill in terms that we use now to talk about chief executives of, of very effective companies and saying that Beaverbrook talked about Churchill from his own experience as Minister of War Production and Churchill was a great politician to work for because if you went into church and said, we need to do ABC and we need to do ABC tomorrow, Churchill would say, so be it. And it would be done. It's quite incredible to hear you talk about these people because for me, they're so far in the past. And yet, you know, you, you knew these people, or at least knew of them, and they were alive and kicking and very much very influential when you were yeah, starting out. I, I, I tell this story in the book, I had a fascinating audience with Beaverbrook, which kind of decisive one for my career in that he summoned me obviously he was I was a features editor at the Express at the time and I, I realized he was considering me for a somewhat higher office than that and so I, I went to and the editor said whatever you do with Beaverbrook don't tell him what's wrong with the paper don't tell him what's wrong with the paper so of course that's exactly what I did I told him what was wrong with the paper the reason why the editor told me not to do that was that he knew that Beaverbrook would pass these <laughs> back to the editor straight away. I, I got away with it. I mean, I, I realised that Beaverbrook was not going to make the changes that I thought should be made, which were basically that the paper was out of touch with anyone under 40, which it was. Um, uh, but he didn't accept that. So, But anyway, he was content to let me go on with that. But I thought, no, I've had enough of this. I want to go somewhere where, where people will listen to me more. I went first to the Observer and then, then from the Observer to the Sunday Times when I, I launched the Inside Investigative Team. Wow. And then when did you, I mean, the Royal Family is part of the furniture in terms of, you know, British newspapers and stuff. It's, it's always been covered. But did you develop a particular interest in the Royal Family? Yes, so I did. It's partly because what I, what I encountered 
um, doing an insight and investigation into the perfumer affair, the famous perfumer affair. Um, and I, we found out that Prince Philip was somewhere involved in this and not directly, but peripherally. But the fact that he was peripherally involved with Stephen Ward, who was accused of being the, the sort of pimp for the two, Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis, the two girls involved in the Profumo scandal with John Profumo, the defence minister. And, we, and then, of course, as I tell in, in the book, we, the three investigative reporters on the story, were summoned to a hotel near St. James's Park Station by MI5, three MI5 guys who wanted to know how much we knew about Prince Philip. And we knew a bit, but not a lot. But then I told these guys, I said, look, I'm not interested. Prince Philip is marginal. He's irrelevant. And one of the MI5 guys exploded. Irrelevant? You really think he's irrelevant? And I said, to me, Prince Philip is irrelevant. The story of a huge political scandal. And so they were kind of relieved to hear that. And we, we didn't actually do much about Philip in that story. But later on, that connection has become more and more explored. Mm. And so, in, in a way, that was my first encounter with the apparatus of the, the palace's cover-up, this enormous apparatus that they swing into action anytime there's a problem. And all the way through my book, you can see how ineptly they do this. The, the first instinct is to, is to cover up and thereby multiply the problems that they face later. Yeah, that does seem to be a bit of a feature of, yeah, a, a plenty of gaps, to be honest, in terms of the palace. So let's talk a bit more about the scandals in that case that are covered in the book. And I think arguably the first royal scandal of Elizabeth's reign, at least, was Margaret's fling with yeah. Philip Townsend. Yeah. yeah, I think the most important takeaway from the Margaret Townsend saga is that it really is a precursor of what happened much later to Diana, is that as a result of that, Margaret herself became an international celebrity on a level that no member of the royal family had been before, particularly in America and in other parts of the Anglosphere. And she developed a taste for that, and she was that kind of celebrity after that. And that, that changed the way that the media covered the royal family slowly. It changed, changed the way they did it. The, the, simply put, the Margaret Townsend affair was presented at the time as um, when her sister, the Queen, basically blocked her from having a wonderful love relationship with a man older than herself who was divorced. And the Queen came out at, partly because of the way the Queen was, Queen's public relations was badly managed. The Queen came out of it rather unfairly, uh, being seen as the person who stopped Margaret from having the love of her life. That was never true. Margaret had already decided for herself that she didn't in the end want to go through this marriage and she, she told the Prime Minister of the time, Anthony Eden, that it was cooling and she was very glad when she got a, saw an escape valve. But she did nothing to, to change the basic public narrative that the Queen had acted against, her, against Margaret's interests. That remained as part of the legend. And so how did that compare to the big royal scandal that everyone thinks of when they think royal scandal, the way in which the royal family handled Diana? Well, Margaret and Townsend is on a level, say, a rating of three out of ten. Diana is like 11 out of 10. Yeah. Diana was so catastrophic because of the way they handled it. I mean, it starts off as a disaster in the first place. It was Mountbatten again, my favourite bad uncle, who suggested to Charles that he should find 
a sweet young thing, a virginal young thing who would make a perfect kind of fairy tale marriage. So unwisely, Charles takes that advice and, and is presented with Diana, who has then, from that moment on, to play that role, although it's not the role that she's suited for at all. And then did you cover Diana at all when it was breaking? Because it was the big story in the papers for months and maybe years. Yes, I did. Uh, on and off again and again, from basically from this end, rather from, from the US end, rather than from the UK end. And it was clear to me that, uh, I mean, I, I was interested partly because I was also a close friend of Tony Snowden's. And obviously I, I discussed it with Tony because after when Tony married Margaret, he went into the glass cage like Diana did from outside. And Tony was a commoner, not, very, not a very common commoner, but he was literally a commoner. And he was the first member of the royal family who had to work for a living. So he brought a completely new take on it. So I was obviously, when it came to the Diana stuff, Tony was a very interesting... Um, Tony said to me, and it's in the book, he said, um, I don't think Diana realises how dangerous it is to become more famous than the Queen. I was going to ask you about that, actually. I was um, really interested to hear about your recollections with Tony Snowden or Anthony Armstrong Jones. Can you talk a bit about how you got to know him and what kind of person he was? You said you were completely blindsided by his announcement that he was going to get married to Margaret. I was. I had a reputation of knowing everything that was going on with Tony. <laughs> that <laughs> gobsmacked. I didn't know that one at all. I met Tony first on when I was working <clears throat> in the New York office of the Daily Express for a brief time. And we did a story together on the Lower East Side in the Bowery on some skid row guys who were hard up who were playing the role of Santa Claus at the department store, standing outside the department store. So we went down there and did a story about when they, they were transformed, they came out of their skid row clothes and were put into the Santa Claus clothes. And that was the first time I knew Tony and I saw his gift of making himself invisible as a photographer. So they were completely unconscious and unaware of him and, and the pictures were wonderful. That was the start of my long friendship with Tony after after that. So I, when, when I got back to London after the assignment, I got to know him better. And he was working for the Express and we, we assigned him to shoot um, an award for young women who wanted to be models, to have their photograph. The prize was that the first the winners, the first three would be photographed by Tony, have their portraits. When he came back from photographing the winner, I, he had a twinkle in his eye and I knew what had happened. And I said, you had her, didn't you, Tony? And he said, Mm. <laughs> Tony was a very loose person but I, I liked him a lot he had a kind of bedrock sense of values which I think was very unusual in the royal family and so how did marrying into the royal family how did he experience that did that change him or was he taken aback by the level of fame and coverage you know being on the other side of the lens I was very happy when he got back to work and he came back to work for the Sunday Times when I was there because at first the fact that he wasn't working at that level I think was made him very unhappy. He was a, he had a vocation. Margaret, no member of the royal family, and Margaret in particular, one of the problems with the marriage was that Margaret never understood what her vocation was, never understood. And she was very upset that Tony would go away for weeks on end on assignments for the Sunday Times and she would become what we called a Sunday Times widow. Uh, and he'd go long, long distances, go to Japan or Australia or whatever. On, on long stories and there was a lack of tolerance in her for that. I think in the first two years they got on famously. She introduced him to a world that he didn't know but more importantly he, he introduced her to a world that she didn't know 
a world of all the movers and shakers in culture and the arts in the early 1960s. So she became very much a, a part of the swinging 60s. And so when you, I mean, you've, you kind of hopped back and forth across the pond from America to the UK um, over, during your time as a journalist. So I was, I was really interested to know how the coverage of the royal family differs in America as opposed to the UK. Well, I mean, if, if we leap forward to now, the most striking example of that is that Harry and Meghan are loved here. And there was a, an amazing editorial in the New York Times, a whole page editorial, more or less saying, welcome, oh, come, wow. come here, because we appreciate you. I think this is largely driven, honestly, by the view of, of the royal family that's been formed for most Americans by the, the TV series, The Crown. Most Americans' idea of the Queen and the monarchy is formed by what they see on the crown. But there's another thing. I think that Harry and Meghan are much more in tune with the culture here than they are with the culture there. The other problem that Harry and Meghan have is that in what I'd call the the, the royal um, rupture industry, the royal rupture industry, they've now, they're now the major product, Harry and Meghan. It's very unfair because in the absence of anyone else, they've become the lightning rods. And everything they do and everything they say is treated in Britain, I see, and I've said this in the book, it's treated as though it's a direct offence to Britain. That some of, there's, some, there's a sense of loss in, in Britain that they've chosen to be non-royal and come here. There's a sense of gain here, correspondingly. But right, going right back to the Princess Margaret story, actually much earlier than that, in the case of the Duke of Windsor and Mrs. Simpson, the Americans um, reported the royal family in a in a completely uninhibited way that was not possible here, starting off with the abdication when they were running the story first about all the, the, the romance with Mrs. Simpson. And then they predicted that he wanted to marry Mrs. Simpson. His, his desire to marry her was the, was the cause of the abdication. So there's been this kind of, if you like, a kind of time lag between the British getting to know what was going on in the royal family and the Americans getting to know. For a long while, the Americans got to know first, and that went right up to the Margaret's time. I remember you um, saying in, in your book that the British press largely self-centred have a weird kind of sense of chivalry I suppose that they just didn't talk about the royal family and eventually just the floodgates opened when the tabloids decided it was fair game and now yes, we've that, ended up with something that we have now. Yeah that happened with Margaret when the floodgates opened and the tabloids really started addressing the royal family and the public in tabloid language and, and that really altered. I, I think it's I'll give you a little example of, of how antique the coverage of the royal family was in the early 1950s because when when BBC television started and it came from Alexandra Palace and it, the news from Alexandra Palace was recorded on film it was never live and I remember one I've always remembered this the start of one 6pm news bulletin on BBC television was yesterday the Queen Mother they were the opening words of the first story on BBC television it was a story about the Queen Mother opening something. <laughs> that, was, that shows you first the priority in the news, no matter whatever else was happening, was whatever the Queen Mother did. Secondly, it was deferential and completely uncritical. From then to now, like obviously the way that the media treats the royal family has changed so much. What is or what do you think is the Queen's opinion of the media relationship with the media does she tolerate the media or would she rather just block them out entirely she's been very successful at, at remaining aloof from mm. this and i tell the 
story in the book of the one occasion when she decided to confront all the editors and she summoned them to Buckingham Palace. She had Andrew, 21-year-old Andrew, by her side for some reason. She confronted the editors from the Times. The only editor who was missing was Murdoch's editor of The Sun. Um, and that was the one and only time she decided to, to tell them to call it. And it was, this was about Diana, when they were ambushing Diana wherever she was. And she went into, uh, into the little village and got herself some, some wine gums and was photographed um, shopping for wine gums. It was all kind of trivial stuff like that. And that was the one and only attempt she made to directly confront them. And after that, I think she gave up. She realised it was something she couldn't do. So her policy, I think, has been to remain aloof from direct, any direct engagement of that kind. Do you think that's been a successful policy? I think it was the only policy for her to follow. It was not so good for the rest of the family. The rest of particularly Charles, Charles changed the rules. I mean, the whole Charles, Diana saga completely changed the rules. I think it was, then it was fair game. They were fair game for the tabloids after that. Yeah. What kind of future then do you see for the royal family? Do you think it's destined to continue ever onwards, all those kings stretching off into the distance? Do you think it stays in numbers? Um, the Queen is unique in that, uh, that she is unblemished and uh, unassailable and so respected as, as a figure around the world. But I can't see any succeeding monarch, no matter how bland, say bland is William, King William, achieving that unique status. And I see that from the YouGov polling last year that eight, aged 18 to 24, there's only 41% for the monarch. And I think it's about relevance. And I think that if you look at it as an institution rather than as a person, young people would find it very hard to see the relevance of a monarchy. As a bit of an old old bird myself, I, I, I do have one kind of, I've always had one theory about the usefulness of the monarchy, and that is that if the, if the head of state is the monarch and the monarch has no political power, which they don't, and they're a kind of abstract expression of the state, then that's a pretty good safety valve because I don't think you'd want a politician or certainly a, a military officer, as happened in France with de Gaulle, as a head of state in Britain. Um, that'd be pretty awful. So they're like a kind of placebo. They're a pill that you take thinking that it's going to work, and it does work most of the time. But if you if you really catch a disease, it doesn't work any longer. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a difficult balance. I can imagine. One of the reasons why I feel what I was trying to get across in the book is, and why it's called The Last Queen, is that she really is maybe not just the last queen, but the last really loved and effective monarch, that no one following her after this will have the, anything like the same success and attraction that she's had. Bearing in mind that I'm quite critical, I'm very critical of her at some points in the book, where I felt felt she fell really behind in, in judging public mood and understanding the needs for change in the institution itself. She resisted the needs for change quite frequently and quite vigorously for a very long time. But she's reached the point now where she is what she is and, that, you know, that has evident qualities. No, absolutely. Is there anything you wish or that you hope people will take away from reading your book, The Last Queen? Yeah, I think it, I think it's that the uh, the Queen has to be viewed separately and independently of the rest of the brood. 
the rest of the brood are a really wobbly bunch altogether. I mean, I, I, I just think that Charles is, as I said, unsuited to be king. William would be a safe pair of hands, but have nothing like the same stature or charisma of, as, as the queen. So, yeah, I think that's what I'd like people to take away, that this is a very special person. And, uh, and her, her era, her reign, will, will be a, a discreet chunk of history on its own, quite unique. Yeah, absolutely. The second Elizabethan age. Um, yeah. <laughs> in that case, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to our listeners. Uh, Clive, thank you so much. Thanks, Vicky. Thanks for listening to another Bike Back podcast. If hearing about Clive's experience reporting on the Queen and writing about her piqued your interest in finding out more about the royal family's often rocky relationship with the media, then why not pick up a copy of The Last Queen? It's available now on the Bike Back website. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Until next time.